The Guardian. The Prime Minister is back in hospital, this time for the birth of his son. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I'm sorry I've been away from my desk for much longer than I would have liked. And I want to thank Only two days after Boris Johnson had come back to work, it was announced on Wednesday morning that his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, had given birth to a baby boy. The Prime Minister won't be taking paternity leave right away. He's postponed it until later in the year. Don't forget, the PM had only just returned to Downing Street on Monday after convalescence from his own bout of coronavirus, which made Monday so jam-packed with government announcements it was hard to keep up. The government introduced a new element to the daily press briefings on coronavirus, a question sent in from a member of the public. Given ministers' clear irritation at some of the tough questions political reporters have been asking these last few weeks, could this be a subtle ploy to hear rather less from pesky journalists? In that same press briefing, the Health Secretary announced that families of NHS and social care workers who died after contracting the virus through their work will be entitled to a payment of £60,000. Hancock was quick to admit that no amount of money could ever make up for the loss of a loved one. But might he and his fellow ministers be hoping that this payment will distract us from those areas where the government is still getting it so badly wrong? And while official announcements continue to come, behind the scenes the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is expected to be cleared by a Home Office inquiry into allegations of bullying made against her. The Guardian's Home Affairs correspondent, Jamie Grison, will tell us what's next for the Home Secretary. Plus, I speak to the man chosen to hold Patel to account over the next four years, the new Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, every week brings yet more news, and this week we've seen a veritable avalanche of government announcements. To help me digest what it all means, on the line is The Guardian's deputy political editor, Rowena Mason. Rowena, it's been a massively busy week in Westminster, and it's only Wednesday. Boris Johnson came back to work on Monday, but he didn't take Prime Minister's questions today because of some rather good news that broke this morning. That's right. His fiance Carrie Simmons, has just had a baby, boy. There was a strange thing last night where Downing Street were being very cryptic about whether he'd appear at Prime Minister's questions today. And there was all sorts of speculation going on in Westminster about his health and whether he might have crashed again uh, during his recuperation from coronavirus. But then it turned out that actually it was rather wonderful news that uh, the baby had arrived uh, in the early hours of this morning. And I thought it was one of these salutary lessons for Twitter types to stay off the Twitter, really, because there a lot of people said in the morning there can be no excuse for him not to do Prime Minister's questions. This is outrageous. And then an hour or so later, it emerged that he had probably what is the very best excuse, the birth of a child. That's right, really. And I, I strange that it didn't really cross anybody's mind that it, it, that's what it might be, because... In the announcement of Carrie Simmons's pregnancy, they said the baby was due in early summer. So we're not that far off early summer. It's, the baby's possibly a little bit early. But yes, you're quite right. It's it's a pretty good excuse. And really, the key question now will be how long he takes off 
in order to support her and and the baby and whether the baby's got any um, additional needs that might mean it has to stay any stay in hospital a little bit longer if it was born early. That's right. I mean, the, the, what we've heard is that they've decided that he should postpone taking paternity leave until later on in the year. But given that, when can we expect to see him next? Do you think? Well, you would expect him to take a, a few days, but that just depends on the kind of message that Downing Street is wanting to give out in all of this. I think they will be very cautious about trying to maintain the appearance that now that he's back, they've said he's raring to go and that he wants to get on with things. And there has been a power vacuum generally uh, within Westminster, uh, the cabinet number 10, since he's been away. And that there's some extremely big decisions coming up to be made in the next week about easing the lockdown. So I think they will want to give the impression that he's still working, that he's still in control but you would expect him to take at least the rest of the day if if not a couple of days of a lighter workload and no word yet on the name i know that some people are wondering if he'll just play to type and name the child winston after his great hero but you hearing anything no, I haven't heard any rumours on that front. There's been a, all the um, betting companies are putting out bets on names like Wilfred and Stanley, who are who are ancestors of the Prime Minister, and his uh, his other some of his other children have got names of a classical bent. So we could see baby Cicero. Could be baby Cicero. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, once again, all, all of this did mean that for the second week running, Dominic Raab, the first Secretary of State, had to deputise at Prime Minister's questions. And as as you and I talk now, that's only uh, just behind us. Uh, he must have been prepared that the big question uh, that he would face and that did uh, come from his uh, from Keir Starmer leading for Labour is about testing. And hanging over the government is this target of Matt Hancock's to hit 100,000 tests by the end of the month, which, as you and I talk now, is just 24 hours away. Um, They've said that they technically won't know if they've managed to hit that target until Saturday, but it doesn't look good. Uh, How did Raab deal with that, do you think? And how do you think the government are going to deal with what is almost certainly going to be a missed target? Well, they are sounding fairly strangely confident and optimistic about it. So I don't know what they've got up their sleeve um, in order to hit that target. But at the moment, it doesn't seem at all likely that they'll reach it. Um, Oh, but you think just reading the body language, as it were, and the mood music, you think it's possible maybe somehow they will? Well, Professor John Newton, who's in charge of coordinating testing this morning, said he was pretty confident that they would hit it. My sense is that they'll miss it by a few days or a week or something. But they are sort of on the road to it. And they, I think they probably hope that people will understand that. And it was interesting that Keir Starmer said something fairly sympathetic during Prime Minister's questions that many people might not set that much stock by the target being hit on the, on the actual day that it could take a little bit longer and that people might understand that. I noticed that. I thought that was really striking. He more or less preemptively let them off the hook and said, we're not going to get hung up over dates, didn't he? It was strange considering the government had set this target for themselves and promised to keep it so many times. I think we have to keep an eye out for any jiggery-pokery with the numbers. There's been several times when it seemed like uh, the government was trying to shift the goalposts a little bit and call it testing capacity that they were trying to reach of 100,000. Now it's been clarified again that they are actually trying to reach an actual number of tests carried out. But it's possible that um, we might need to keep a close eye on that. And the other thing that they could possibly do is open up testing to a a wider number of people. They've only recently made about 25 million people eligible for it by opening it up to key workers and who are symptomatic and all residents of care homes and all over 65s who are symptomatic. So it could be possible if, if if they feel like 
not enough people have applied for tests today, they might widen that eligibility further in a sort of slightly gimmicky move tomorrow or the next day to say, well, the demand wasn't there. So now we're, we're going to let any, any, anybody who wants to book a test. That's, that is a possibility. And that could be a way that they p- potentially hit the target over the weekend. That's right. Although Keir Starmer was quick to say, look, there's clearly no problem with demand because these sites kind of sell out, as it were, of tests within minutes. So the demand is there. It's the, it's the question of sort of organising it and managing to join up the capacity with the people who want it. But nevertheless, the other issue that loomed, and you reported this morning on the fact that the uh, Cabinet Minister, George Eustace, uh, Environment Secretary, admitted that the government had indeed focused more on the NHS than they had on care homes and particularly on counting deaths in hospitals rather than in care homes in the early stages of the outbreak. Again, they've tried to rectify that a bit with the numbers, but it does as it look, doesn't it, the more time passes that that was a fateful error by government to, to in a way, overlook care homes which were so obviously uh, a site of risk uh, for the people in them. It does seem like extraordinary complacency when you look back at some of the comments that were being made in in press conferences um, dating back to when this lockdown first began. The government really believed that the danger area was hospitals getting overwhelmed and there was really very little scrutiny on the area of care homes. And I think they thought that by banning, banning visitors there, that it would um, that it would prevent the, the spread of coronavirus in care homes. But now that just seems extremely naive, um, knowing what we know now about coronavirus and how easily it spreads um, and the importance of, of, of personal protective equipment in protecting staff and stopping the spread um, from, from carers to the residents they're looking after. And it seems that even though the government's saying that we are passing through the peak of this in terms of community transmission and hospitals, the same cannot be said of care homes. The situation there, despite what the government is saying, it seems to be that it's it's worsening or certainly not getting any better. So you've been mentioning PPE, and that obviously still remains a big issue. And partly perhaps to dampen the fury that plenty of people feel about that, the government did announce that loved ones of NHS workers who have died uh, due to uh, COVID-19 will be given a £60,000 payment in a way, a form of compensation, if uh, it's for clear that the person who's deceased uh, contracted the virus in the course of their work. Uh, it's been welcomed. Family members have said, look, that's welcome, although, of course, it doesn't replace the people who've been lost. But do, do, to what extent do you think it will reduce the heat on government to ensure there is sufficient PPE for those frontline health workers? Or, or, or do you think just it, there's this will garner no real protection for the government from the anger there is out there? Um, I think it seems incredibly cheap for a life, the idea that £60,000 is enough compensation for somebody that's lost a loved one in the course of helping treat other people um, for this awful disease. And so nobody's going to turn down that money, but I don't think it can insulate the government at all from the criticism that it's getting around um, PPE and and inadequate supplies. In the course of looking back over this whole episode, there'll be chapters of um, of the public inquiry written on what has happened and what's gone wrong here and why we weren't better prepared. And PPE and testing really are the sort of big areas, aren't they? I'm, I'm interested to know what you think of this change that happened in the daily press conferences, which with Parliament in this kind of semi-limbo with part virtual, part physical, and also, of course, it was in recess over Easter, the daily press conferences have become the main forum, along perhaps with Piers Morgan on Breakfast TV, to hold the government 
to account. And there's this been this change, which is now an addition of a question from the public. I'm curious what you think as a as, as a lobby correspondent, a journalist who's there, what you think is behind this move and whether this is an attempt somehow for the government to dodge the likes of you and the tough questions you might ask and, and try and, in effect, go over your heads and, and somehow connect with the public directly. I think there is a sense in which Downing Street is enjoying a lot some of the heat that's come on to journalists for asking questions that some members of the public don't like but it's i mean it's very polarized as it as as the political environment has been for a long time now you know those are people who are supportive of the government and sort of seem to think we should be in some sort of national war effort where there's less questioning of the of the government going on and then on the other half other side people are saying that the, the journalists are too supine and not asking difficult enough questions and letting the government off the hook so it's quite difficult to win in some ways um but the point of getting those members of the public in i think is to try and show up the journalists in in some way. Um, they are trying to sort of whip up ill feeling between the public and and reporters and suggest that uh, members of the public are asking better, more sensible questions. As a final question to you, the, we, people are talking about the strategies for lockdown and uh, uh, rather than even dates. And Scotland has been at least made public its strategy, Wales in a similar place. What do you expect and when we might get something equivalent from the UK government on at least outlining its principles on lockdown, given that the sort of UK position is beginning to unravel a bit with different nations of the UK going their own way? Well, number 10 is still steering very heavily that we won't get a proper review of lockdown measures until May the 7th, which is next week, even though there's a there's a huge clamour within the Tory party generally, and there's forces in the cabinet who desperately want um, more signs sent out to business that there are going to be ways of unwinding the lockdown happening quite soon. Really, what Downing Street are pushing over and over again is that they don't want a second peak of the virus that um, threatens to overwhelm the NHS. They're so reluctant to, to start formally floating any ideas for potential ways out of it because they fear that this will undermine the purity of the message, the stay-at-home message that they think is crucial for getting that rate of transmission down. So um, inevitably, you've got all kinds of ideas, some balmier than others, leaking out into the newspapers. But the truth is that we really don't know which of those measures will be picked. Um, the most certain thing we can say is that certain sectors of the economy, certain types of businesses might be allowed to open up um, sooner than others. But as for the amount of contact that we're going to be able to have with our friends and our family uh, and wider society and, and big social events, it's, it's really unclear how soon we're going to be able to do that again. Rowena, I know you have other things to do, other pesky, difficult questions to ask of those in power. I'm going to leave you to do that for the moment. Rowena, thank you very much. Thank you. After the break, we take a look at the goings-on at the Home Office. The Guardian's Jamie Grierson explains how the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, was cajoled into appearing in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee as she battles an employment tribunal claim. And I speak to the man who sits, at least virtually for the time being, opposite Priti Patel, the new Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons. We'll be right back. The Guardian Science Weekly podcast is exploring some of the crucial scientific questions surrounding COVID-19. 
from soap it does not matter how good your soap is it is how you apply it on your hands to social distancing the fact that we're doing this online means i'm unlikely to spread an infectious disease to you to unlocking a lockdown if you ease off when your infections are still at a very high level you're just going to maintain infections listen to science weekly from the guardian on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Now, February might seem a dim and distant memory, but do you remember this? I have this morning resigned as Permanent Secretary of the Home Office. I take this decision with great regret after a career of 33 years. I am making this statement now because I will be issuing a claim against the Home Office for constructive dismissal. That was Sir Philip Rutnam, formerly the top civil servant of the Home Office, announcing dramatically his resignation and making serious allegations against the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. In his unusually public statement, Rutnam accused Patel of bullying and told reporters he intended to sue the government for constructive dismissal. After Rutnam resigned, the Cabinet Office Minister, Michael Gove, announced there would be an internal inquiry into bullying allegations against the Home Secretary, one that related to her work in no less than three separate government departments. Patel is expected to be cleared by that inquiry at some point later this week. But many are criticising the Cabinet Office process. The Labour Party demanded the inquiry must be made public as soon as possible – When asked to comment, both Patel and the Home Office have refused, saying this is now an ongoing legal issue. Despite looking like she survived that initial inquiry unscathed, Priti Patel still faces some question marks over her future. Earlier this month, Rutnam followed through on his threat, lodging an employment tribunal claim. And today, the Home Secretary gave evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee on how her department has been running over these past few rather challenging months. The Guardian's Home Affairs correspondent, Jamie Grierson, has been following the story, and he has this report. Even in ordinary times, a tribunal may take some time to actually come to court, as it were, so reach the stage of a public hearing. What will happen now is that both sides, so the Home Secretary and the Home Office and Sir Philip Rutnam on the other side, will prepare their cases. Certain demands will be made on either side in terms of, for example, disclosures for certain documents and emails and so on. And all this administrative process will continue until they reach a stage when a substantial public hearing can take place. As to when that will happen, it is difficult to say because obviously the courts and in criminal courts, civil courts, uh, the High Court and employment tribunals uh, have all been impacted by the virus. They're not happening at the moment. So it may be some time before something public, um, an actual public hearing takes place. This week, uh, the Home Affairs Select Committee is convening. They're doing a virtual session over the internet, which they've been doing over the last few weeks, as have a number of uh, select committees. There was some controversy around Pretty Patel's appearance because it emerged 
a couple of weeks ago that the Home Affairs Select Committee and its chair, the Labour MP Yvette Cooper, had been trying to arrange this date for some time. It, it goes back to late January, so far before the coronavirus outbreak. They were trying to arrange for the Home Secretary to give evidence. It's totally a matter of course for Secretaries of State to appear before Select Committees to talk about the work of their departments. Plenty of other ministers have appeared before Select Committees throughout the last few weeks, uh, despite the crisis, all appearing online. For example, the Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland, he's made several appearances before the Justice Select Committee and the Joint Committee for Human Rights. So Patel was running out of convincing excuses for not appearing before the Select Committee. So what Yvette Cooper did is publish a load of correspondence between herself and the Home Secretary online, which revealed that there had been quite a significant row as far as political correspondence goes. Um, You could see in the language Priti Patel expressing uh, disappointment at the increasingly adversarial tone of their exchanges and Cooper saying, you've got to come and appear before this committee. Uh, It's your duty as the Home Secretary to be transparent and to allow MPs to scrutinise your work. And the introduction of the, if you like, of the coronavirus crisis um, only heightened the necessity for her to appear before the committee and explain what work her department's doing during this unprecedented time. And it appears that the move that Cooper and the committee made to publish all that correspondence effectively forced Patel's hand. The Home Secretary has faced criticism for not being particularly present during the last sort of five to six weeks during the crisis. She's done two of the daily briefings. And I know you'd love me to give you a date um, as to when, you know, schools may reopen, but we're not going to do that. That would be irresponsible to do that. That would set hopes up. Both done on a Saturday, which some commentators have pointed out. Saturday isn't necessarily the day when people are sat poring over the the news um, and less likely to tune into the the daily update, even at these times. So she has faced some criticism for being somewhat absent. Obviously, there are questions as to why that's the case. It's correct that the Cabinet Office has been conducting its own internal inquiry into the bullying allegations. Some reports suggest that that inquiry has concluded but they were waiting to pass on the findings to the Prime Minister and waiting for him to return to full health or to return to work, which he has done this week. Whether or not that means forwarding the report to number 10 or publishing some findings or making some sort of comment on the findings, I, I don't know. I, I spoke to the Cabinet Office late last last week and they said that um, the process was ongoing. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're still conducting the investigation. And so it's not an unreasonable leap to assume that that may well be the reason why um, Priti Patel has not been particularly visible during this unprecedented time. Uh, Mr Speaker, I very really repeat the point I just made. The Home Secretary is doing an outstanding job. I have every, I have every confidence in her. Uh, if, if there are allegations, of course it is right that they should be properly investigated. It is a bit of a mugs game trying to predict whether or not uh, this will ultimately lead to the Home Secretary being sacked or forced to resign. One of the scenarios which will be particularly worrying for the Home Secretary and Number 10 is that at some point, 
even though that might be a little way into the future because of the current circumstances, the tribunal is on course to take place. And that will be a very public hearing. And some of the powers of the tribunal include being able to demand the disclosure of emails and uh, documents, um, which otherwise would have stayed private. Maybe there's nothing in them, but depending on what's in the correspondence and what the allegation, specific allegations that Rutner makes, the Home Secretary is going to face a very difficult public hearing. Um, and it will be around that time that the Prime Minister will face renewed questions as to whether or not she should stay in post. It may be that they take action and they ask her to step down, force her to resign, or she resigns in advance of those hearings. Or they may well try and ride out the storm and see what happens. And maybe they're confident that Philip Rutnam actually doesn't have as strong a case as he is presenting. Um, there's numerous outcomes in this scenario. What I'd also say is that since the allegations first emerged throughout February, the media focus and the politics focuses shifted understandably to the coronavirus crisis and so the column inches if you like or the airtime dedicated to the the bullying allegations against Pretty Patel basically dropped off a cliff and may well have bought her some time at least um, so it may not be that we see any anything immediately and we'll just have to wait until the tribunal takes place whenever that will be. Guardian's Home Affairs correspondent, Jamie Grierson. To see his analysis of today's hearing with the Home Affairs Select Committee, head to the Guardian website. Now, one of the people who has condemned how the Cabinet Office inquiry was being run was the man who will sit opposite Priti Patel in the House of Commons, Nick Thomas Simmons, the Shadow Home Secretary. Not a huge amount is known about him. He was born and raised in the constituency he now represents, Pontypool in Wales, and he was there when I spoke to him earlier in the week. I started off by asking him to tell us a bit about his childhood and what or who it was that first got him interested in politics. I became very conscious in the late 80s, early 1990s, throughout then my, my teenage years, that there, there had been heavy industry here that, of course, it was dangerous, of course, it was difficult. But these were high quality local jobs. And it seemed to me that those jobs had gone and that nothing had been brought along to replace it. And I saw extremely talented people, highly skilled people, who I thought were being let down in that sort of Thatcher era into the John Major era. And it inspired me to want to change things. And I remember discussions with my grandmother. And the thing she taught me was this, that if you wanted to change things, then politics was the route to do that. And it's those discussions with her I had were were that moment, if you like, when I thought, yes, this is something I would like to do. This is um, a route by which I think I can make a difference. Did she herself follow her own advice and say, if you want to change things, get stuck into politics? She she tried to stand for local council unsuccessfully in the early 1970s, but her real ambition in life was to become a nurse. And the reason she inspired me with this is because she didn't achieve that until her late 50s. And what she used to say to me about that was not to give up. She was someone who, because of the era she was born in, she was born in 1920, And she had various jobs throughout her life. She worked in a local fuel station is one example. 
but never gave up on that ambition. And what she always said to me was that if you are determined and you work hard, you can achieve what you want to achieve, but but never forget those things. And the fact she did it, Jonathan, so late in her working life is something that's always given me a lot of hope in different things in, in my life too. Now, when somebody in the Valley suggests politics, it can only mean one thing. It always means, or historically always meant, Labour Party politics. And people talk within the Labour Party about moderates and soft left and hard left. You've heard all those categories. Which camp, which tradition, which strain within Labour, rather than just saying Labour itself, would you align yourself with? Well, I would align myself always with the Bevanite strand, Jonathan, and he is the second of my biographical subjects. Bevan always inspired me because he wanted to achieve constructive achievement, changes to people's lives that made a difference to their their everyday life. And of course, the shiny example of that is the National Health Service. And, you know, he called it a piece of real socialism. It wasn't for him just about the ideas, massively important though they were. And his brand of socialism, that sense of actually taking a set of ideas, tethering them, achieving something with them, is always what's inspired me uh, and still does today. It's a fascinating choice, actually, Attlee and Bevan, because there was a time in the 80s, for example, where to, to name those two would have identified you with the left. Bevan was still thought of as a figure of the left. And yet, you know, because the NHS is now sort of a matter of consensus. And some of that, Clem Attlee, on the one hand, yes, you know, the 1945 government, socialism in action. And yet, on the other hand, the nuclear bomb, strong Atlanticist relationship with America. They are figures who straddle both left and right in Labour Party sort of iconography. Well, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because that judgment would probably be different depending on at which point in the last 50, 60 years you'd been asked the question. For me, there's something about Attlee and Bevan that's timeless as well. And the timeless point, I think, is this, that yes, of course, the circumstances of 1945 were very particular. We'd just gone through World War II and the government elected at the end of that war was going to have the opportunity to bring about change in a direction it so wished. But for me, it is still about the, the use, their use of power, what they wanted to achieve with it. And yes, they achieved some things that later became more controversial. They also didn't do things that later people thought that uh, that they should have done. But taking everything together, when you look at that government, you cannot but say that they made an enormous difference to people's everyday life. And in fact, I would argue even more than that, they shaped expectations of what people could expect in their own lives in the post-war era. And, and to, talking about the NHS, Jonathan, it's interesting you say that it is now accepted as a you know real mainstream achievement. But of course, it wasn't at the time, but it became accepted. And that is in itself a, a tremendous achievement. And look at where we are now with the coronavirus crisis and our reliance on that institution that was created all those decades ago. More broadly then, what did Labour, uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, Diane Abbott, all of the team that went into 2019, what do you think they got wrong that you would want to put right? Well, Evans, one of Nye Evans' famous quotations is, the language of priorities is the religion of socialism. And I think the problem, one of the problems in 2019 was that we promised so, so much. It would seem from a lot of polling that individually a lot of the policies were popular, but taken together, it seemed the public did not believe that we would deliver them. 
And the problem is that when you took everything together, people didn't think that it all could be delivered. So going forward at the next general election, of course, we are a few years away from that. But when it comes, it will be about making sure that we pick up the issues that people did have and will still have on the doorsteps about public services, about the cost of living. In my view, the new a new economic settlement that will have to come after the coronavirus crisis. It's about making sure that you prioritise your argument, show practically what you want to achieve, and that people actually then believe you can achieve it. And one of the things that is clearly going to be significant is how things are changing during the coronavirus crisis. We rightly at the moment provide that constructive, responsible opposition to to get the government to focus, to get the government to make better decisions, to get us through this and minimise loss loss of life. But we also need to think too about the message, and it will have to be that, that as I say, that, that prioritised message at the next general election, particularly around, for example, the value of those in our society who are doing everything to keep the country running our refuse collectors, our retail workers, all our frontline workers, our NHS staff, social care staff, and how they should have that greater stake in the country that is going to emerge from the crisis that we're in. You mentioned there about constructive opposition. So when we look at the numbers and whichever way you slice it, Britain is at the kind of wrong end of the international league table in terms of the numbers of those who have died. Do you think it's time Labour was a little less constructive and a bit more opposition? No, I think that the the balance has been about right. And the reason I think that is because there is a particular time to ask broader questions. Now, we have put forward our concerns about, for example, slowness on the issue of testing and tracing, the gap between what the government says and what's actually happening on the front line on things like personal protective equipment. Uh, We even, you know, raised the issue about the lockdown before it eventually was announced. So we have been raising those issues, but I think it is very, very important at a time when, you know, over 20,000 people have died that we stress our support for the overarching aim of the government saving life We will continue to ask questions and ask difficult questions. Of course we will. But at the same time, there will be, at the end of this crisis, a quite serious look at precisely how this was handled and precisely how that can be improved. Just on your own particular area of home affairs, do you think the coronavirus era is going to be one in which, not just for these few weeks of lockdown, but maybe for a long time, is going to see civil liberties eroded? And should we just all get used to that? Well, the first point is that in a public health emergency, there are going to be these severe restrictions on liberty. And I believe the police, by and large, have got policing of it right in a very difficult situation. I also believe the British public, the vast majority of the British public, have done extremely well in actually following the guidelines so that we can assist our NHS and we can stay at home and save lives. But secondly, there is a premium there, a real imperative on additional scrutiny. And whilst I don't mean that Parliament should be sitting in its traditional sense of everybody sitting on packed benches, obviously not, but I do think that what we've seen in Parliament in terms of its operation is a real step forward, and we need to continue with that. Scrutiny is ever more important when you have a government with that set of powers that it could potentially use. 
Let's just talk about the, your sh- the person you shadow, Pretty Patel. It has been noticeable that she has been one of the more low-profile cabinet ministers during the crisis. She's not been front and centre. Does that make it hard for you to shadow a Secretary of State who is flying under the radar, as it were? I don't think it's me that it makes life difficult for, but I do think it is concerning for police officers on and other servants, actually, on the front line, because I speak, as you can imagine, to those who represent police officers of all ranks, and I've passed on my thanks to them for the work they're doing. But I think the Home Secretary should be out in public regularly, recognising the sacrifice of our police officers on the front line. And the more she does that, I think it would be the better for them. Is she not doing that because of the inquiry hanging over her head, do you think? It's very difficult for me to speculate as to precisely what the reason is as to why the Home Secretary isn't as public as she might be. But clearly, the issue of keeping people safe, of keeping people, their families and their communities safe, is at the heart of the coronavirus crisis. And obviously, I'd like to see the Home Secretary in public a lot more thanking police officers for the work they're doing for keeping people safe. Now, a lot of people think it's almost madness that this country, given everything going on, is going to crash out of the European Union transition period with no deal on New Year's Eve unless a free trade agreement can be worked out in a matter of months during a time of global crisis. Do you think Labour should be pushing much harder for a Brexit extension, which at the moment the government's saying it won't countenance? Look, the the government is making the argument that it can still complete this by the end of the year. What we will do as the opposition is to hold them to account on that. That's what they say. And we will, in Parliament, be pressing them on that and insisting that they set out precisely the steps that they're taking. But what's your own view? Don't you think it has to be an extension given everything going on? I I think it's, it's, it's for the government to tell us what they want to do and what their plans are. And we know that the immediate focus is on the coronavirus crisis. Of course we do. But it's up to the government now both to set out its exit strategy on the coronavirus crisis, which we've been calling for for several weeks, and also to set out its plans as regards the looming deadline on the extension period and that we will scrutinise them on. I'm just wondering if they won't really move on that if you're not putting pressure on them to do it. And if you're just saying, well, look, show us how you plan to do it, they won't feel that heat. And I understand why Labour would be reluctant because you don't want to be seen as still the party of Remain, the Remain resistance who haven't got the message. But I'm just wondering, unless you put that pressure, the government's just going to keep on going this way until we're staring down the barrel of no deal. Well, no, I think that they can still be questioned and they will be questioned in Parliament, particularly now that it is up and running. And they will have to explain themselves in Parliament and in the media as you would do on any major policy of this kind. And rest assured, we'll be there holding them to account and asking those questions. Last question for you. It was a, such a ticklish and nervy subject for your predecessors. And, in, you know, right back into the Gordon Brown period, this has been tricky for Labour and Blair perhaps too, which is migration. What do you think Labour's policy on migration should be? We will always, I think, stand by broad principles on this. So firstly, yes, of course, it's always a positive. We're an internationalist party for people to live and work in other countries. We will always stand by the issue of justice in our immigration system. And we've seen through the Windrush scandal what happens when you don't get that justice. 
And thirdly, we will always look at fairness. We will never treat people as statistics in our immigration system. We will always treat people as people. And it's those broad principles that will inform our immigration policy going into the next general election. But surely changed by coronavirus when the whole country has seen that we need people from outside, yes, to staff the NHS, but also even to pick fruit and and vegetables out of the ground. I mean, this is surely the the moment where you could get a hearing for a different position and and perhaps in some ways a more principled position in favour of migration. I've no doubt at all that the coronavirus crisis will bring about profound changes. And one of the changes that I believe is happening is the worth of people, how we see people, how we value what they do. Now, many of us didn't need a reminder about this, but I do think the government has had a stark reminder that someone who earns less than £25,600 a year is not unskilled at all. And we've seen throughout this crisis, people who would fall into that category are actually out there as we speak, keeping the country running and keeping the country going. And I hope that does show a bit of a difference to the government in its overall approach. The Shadow Home Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons. And that's all from us this week. Before we sign off, I once again just want to thank all of you who've supported The Guardian so far. As you know, trusted news is more important than ever, and The Guardian is committed to accurate, reliable news in all our reporting. If any of you haven't already done so but would like to support us, do head to theguardian.com slash support podcasts. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Rowena Mason, Jamie Grierson and Nick Thomas-Simmons. The producer was Daniel Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. I hope you're all taking care and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.